0: Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon. This is Mike Herring. And this afternoon, I have the pleasure of spending 45 or 50 precious minutes with our friend and fellow Mike Cody, someone who many of you may have met over the years, but who has left quite an impression in his community and on the college. So I'm delighted. Mike, are you ready for me? Yes. I understand that you attended Rhodes College and then UVA for law school. Is that right? That's correct. All right. So UVA Law 1961. Just give me a sense, if you can, What UVA was like in 1961? I graduated the law school in 1990. Well, there's nothing like it is
1: now, except it's beautiful. (laughs) It's beautiful then, it's beautiful now. Of course, as uh, all of us know, from 58 to 61, when I was there, it was still segregated. It was segregated racially, but for the most part, it was segregated with men and women. And in the law school, there were two or three women in our class, no blacks, African-Americans at all, no orientals, that I can recall. Uh, Most of the people came from the eastern seaboard, a few from California. We were on the grounds near the main library, and we were in Clark Hall, which we weren't where the school is now. And for the last year, I lived on West Range, which was right across the street there from the library.
0: So that's right. I have completely forgot. The law school was actually in Clark Hall. Is that right?
1: That's right. I got some funny murals over there.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. I don't know when you were last on campus, Mike, but it's such a different place. The North Grounds is built out. It's fabulous. There's a new project underway at the Darden School. It's certainly the crown jewel of Virginia schools, in my humble opinion. It's worth a
1: visit. Yeah, well, I have seen it. And of course, when I was there, it was just a big hill up on the other side of the highway. But it was nice to be in the uh, old original grounds and to see the serpentine walls and to walk down to the corner. And everything was cozy and close. I know in the West Range where I lived, room a couple of doors down was where Edgar Allan Poe lived. And it was quite a historical spot to live. right.
0: Right. So if I'm understanding the materials that you sent me, you spent the entirety of your career, at least your career, firm life at the same firm, Birch Porter and Johnson. Is that right? That's right. And I'm actually
1: in the office doing this interview where I was 62 years ago when I first became a member of this firm or an employee of this firm. That's so uncommon today.
0: I know I've moved around. I've done a lot of different things over the span of my career. But these days, I don't think it's at all uncommon for lawyers to have been in at least two or three places within the first 10 years of their career.
1: Yeah, I had one year at Bassbury and Sims in Nashville, right after I was attorney general of Tennessee when I thought I was going to stay in Nashville. And then I got homesick, Came back to Memphis, but you're correct. Other than that one year in public service, I've always been right here in this office.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I want to take that segue and chat just a bit about your public service. You've served at three levels, if I'm correct. Attorney General, U.S. Attorney, and then locally on
1: city council. Is that right? That's right. So in reverse order, I was on the city council, then I was U.S. Attorney, and then I was Attorney General, State of Tennessee. Did you
0: have to run for council, or were you appointed? I ran. You know, I'm a former district attorney for my city, and I was curious as to why you didn't run for DA.
1: I never was interested in being a district attorney. My idea when I ran for the city council, which was an at-large position, it wasn't districts. It was the entire city of Memphis. My idea at that time when I ran is I would eventually, after I served on the city council for a while, I then run for mayor of Memphis. That was my idea, and I was positioned to do that. But President Carter, in 1977, appointed me the United States attorney. So I had to resign being on the city council and become the U.S. attorney during Carter's term four years there, 77 to 81, basically.
0: Mm -hmm. And so I'm just trying to imagine – what you would have encountered as U.S. attorney in Memphis for the period 77 through 81. It's obviously very different now, but I take it your office was divided between civil and criminal sides. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Just for sake of efficiency, what was the profile of the criminal work in Tennessee
1: late 70s, early 80s? Well, there's nothing like it is now. My priorities in those days were sort of set by the Justice Department. Griffin Bell was the Attorney General of the United States. We sort of looked at white-collar crime, organized crime, environmental crimes, and, of course, the criminal side of it. But most of it was sort of big-case stuff. Today, they're covered up with guns and drugs. Right. It's almost like the DA's office with enhanced punishments so that the people working in the U.S. Attorney's Office now resemble the DA employee more than they do what we used to see.
0: Yeah, and I'm told in my sense is they encounter quite a bit of pushback from the US district judges because of what appears to be essentially an appropriation of state court work.
1: That's right. They're pressured to get street crime cases so they can enhance the punishments and there's a lot of political pressure on the office now. And of course, in the old days, there's no civil service protection. I just would hire an employee or a new lawyer, and they served at my pleasure now. It's uh, they're sort of career people.
0: Yeah, Mike, when you came out of law school, was public service a part of your plan, so
1: to speak? Yeah, I think it was. Deep down, I always knew that if you were going to be effective in public service, you need to be a good lawyer first. So I was determined to be a real lawyer before I became a political person. Let's see, I started practice in 1961, and it was 1975 before I ran for public office. So in those years, I tried every kind of case in the world. As a matter of fact, my uncle was a guy named Cody Fowler, who was the second president of the American College of Trial Lawyers. Oh, wow. When I told him I was in law school, he said, you're not going to be a lawyer unless you try lawsuits. You're not a lawyer unless you try lawsuits. (laughs) So I tried every kind of lawsuit in the world that came in the door.
0: I love it. You know, I think that most of our peers in the college would agree that we're seeing fewer lawyers in elected office. I would imagine you see that as a negative trend, right?
1: Yeah, I do. I think it, uh, of course, in my days of running the city council, you could still have another job. It was a part-time job, even though it seemed to take most of your time. And so I didn't even have to resign being with my firm until I was appointed a U.S. attorney. And so during that time, I both was a private lawyer and on the city council. And But once I went into the U.S. attorney's office, I had to resign my position in this firm until I eventually came back. But it was a big change for me because I was in the political arena as a city council. But when I became U.S. attorney, I was a Democrat, appointed by a Democratic president. And the first thing I had to do is help indict and convict the Democratic governor of the state of Tennessee and a lot of local officials that were Democratic office holders or people connected with them. So I lost my political hat pretty quick once I became U.S. attorney.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure you've made a lot of friends sending local luminaries to jail and whatnot. Mike, were you drawn to policy? I mean, what was it about the service? A lot of folks, for better or for worse, are drawn to the power of elected office. And then I think some are drawn by the prospect of having impact at scale. What was your motive? Well, I think from the time I was
1: started college, I felt like I wanted to have a larger role in the community and to shaping policy and having the right things done. Part of that was the civil rights movement because I jumped into the civil rights movement very quickly in Memphis in 1958 through sixty and on. It was lockdown, segregation here. That was the biggest issue that attracted me and my hope when I eventually ran for mayor was that I could serve as a bridge and bring the community together racially. Were you vocal
0: about your intentions in that regard? Did people know that you'd hope to bridge the two communities? In other words, could you afford to be an open-outed Democrat in that way running at that
1: time? Well, I could when I ran for city council because we had a black congressman whose I had been his campaign manager earlier named Harold Ford. He was a real effective politician and he controlled the African-American vote. So when I ran for the city council with his support, I got about 87% of the black vote, and I got about 55% of the white vote. So I was elected at large. Then when I went to be U.S. attorney, I had the unfortunate event of having to put Harold's brother in prison. And after that, when I ran for mayor, all of that Ford support disappeared. Yeah. And I was a moderate candidate in the middle. I got 40% of the white vote. I got no significant black vote. And so I didn't, it was a runoff in those days. And so the conservative white candidate was elected. Fascinating. Last question
0: on the politics, right? So I'm not going to linger on this too long, but I'm fascinated by it. Do you advise young people to pursue Positions in public service, particularly elected office, or do you think things have changed so much that that's not a liability you want on your hands, so to speak?
1: No, I very much encourage it. And I taught it until I've got Parkinson's, and so I don't speak well, and I've had to give up this year teaching. But for a long time, I taught in college at Vanderbilt and then at Rhodes. And every student that I counsel with that wants to go to law school, I tell them the importance of being involved to some degree. In public service, not that they have to run for office, but just that they see that they've got a bigger responsibility as a lawyer than just making a living for themselves and their family. They've got an obligation to the community to use their talents as a lawyer to improve the place we live in.
0: Hmm. Good for you. So I want to wind the clock back a bit. Okay. We've obviously talked about the climate post-law school. I want to go back to your childhood. You've been kind enough to share with us some of your very poignant memories as a student. And one really resonated with me, and it was your description of a teacher telling you all to pile up your books to donate to the Black kids. I can visualize that. And here's my question. When the teacher told you to do it, and you heard and heeded the instruction. Did it occur to you that you were giving your books to black kids or did you think you were just giving your books to poor kids? I mean, through what lens did you process
1: it? Poverty or race? Well, it was race. It was race because when I was growing up, I was in a neighborhood that had a lot of poor white kids as well as a lot of poor black kids. Memphis was segregated, but it was not a big enough place that you could be completely segregated. But in this case, it was clear that the teacher was saying that when we finished using these books at the white school, I was in sixth grade, I think, we'd use them for a couple of years, maybe three years, whatever, spill Coke on them, tear pages out, write notes in them. And then we were through with them. They would go to one of the black schools for them to use three or four more years. And, uh, of course, I never, I didn't say, well, that's not fair, that's terrible or awful, but it made an impression on me for the first time that something was wrong. It was a system that I lived in that uh, a black child would get used books, and I got new books. It just struck me as not right.
0: Right. It sounds like you got an instant lesson that left
1: you with a racial sensitivity. I did. I did. And I never had that before because, you know, my parents were nice people. They never said anything bad about anybody that I ever heard. But they were segregationists. Uh, everybody that lived in Memphis was a segregationist. And so growing up, I sort of expected that separation. But this was the first time I'd seen some basic unfairness in, I guess, six years later when I was running track in Memphis. I had another situation like that that made me feel the pangs of discrimination.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about that one, but I want to stick with this one for a minute and just sort of get your perspective. You know, I'm African-American and I've talked to my kids about all sorts of things, race being one of them. But I was always leery of having heavy conversations of race with my kids when they were younger, because I thought that that would be an unfair burden to shoulder them with at a young age. In other words, it's kind of like once you become aware of this sort of racial tone, or you become sensitive to the dynamics of race, you can't desensitize yourself to it. And you just kind of live with that burden for the rest of your life. At least that's been the case with me. Was that your experience as a sixth grader from that point on, you sort of had to navigate the nuances of race? Uh, I hate to admit
1: that it wasn't. I think when that book situation was over, I probably never thought about it again until I left the 12th grade and started the first time. You see, we were never exposed. Black and white kids were never exposed to each other. I never saw any kids that were black that were my age until I was out of the University of Virginia. I never had any experience with them. And so there was no discussion about it. It was just the fact of life. We live in a segregated community and everybody played by those rules. And we never even realized at the time how harmful it was to the black community, for instance. Although we saw most of the black people were poor and most of the white people were middle class or wealthier, although it wasn't completely. You know, say what you will
0: about busing, but by the time I came through middle school in the 70s, I suspect that but for busing, I would have had little to no exposure to white kids. (laughs) And by the time I got to high school, you know, busing really couldn't do much good. White fight had hollowed out the city. And so all of my peers, with the exception
1: of one close friend in high school, were African-American. The incumbents that I beat when I ran for city council was a Vanderbilt University and law school graduate who was very smart. But he was a segregationist of the first order, and busing was on the agenda. And what he did as a member of the city council is he took all his supporters, and they dug a big hole in the ground, and they took a yellow school bus and pushed it into the hole and covered it up with dirt in order to show his opposition to busing. And I had to run against that kind of candidate, which luckily for me, I could count on supporting the black community as well as the liberal white community.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's almost an unimaginable degree of ugliness.
1: The Junior Chamber of Commerce wanted to have the Chinese to come through on the tour of the United States and play ping pong. This guy passed a resolution of city council saying that the Chinese couldn't play in Memphis because they were communist. So they skipped Memphis, went on to Little Rock or Des Moines, Iowa, somewhere. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It was not a pretty place to live in in other days. Yeah.
0: Wow. OK, so... I know when you got to high school, you were an avid runner,
1: I get the sense. Is that right? Yeah. That's the way I got to go to college eventually. So I was doing a lot of running, you're right. Distance, right?
0: Yeah. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to me that in the 50s, sports or athletics would have been just as segregated as everything else, right? Complete. Not just in Tennessee, but all over the U.S. for the most part.
1: Well, I don't know about California and New York, but they certainly were completely segregated in Memphis it's against the law.
0: Yeah, but you all managed to find a way to compete nonetheless. Is
1: that right? Well, I can't take any credit for planning the track meet, but somehow one weekend I got a message. You know, we didn't have cell phones or anything, but the word got out that there was going to be an informal track meet between black and white runners in Memphis. So as one of the ones that got invited, I climbed over the fence, and the kids from the black schools, they climbed over the other side of the fence, and we had a track meet. And there were no officials there, no coaches, nobody except us. And we ran our own track meet. And there's a point in the story, I guess, that you're talking about is there was a guy from one of the white schools that was a state champion in the 100. And another guy was a state champion in the 200 and the 400-meter run. And black kids beat both of those guys in that track meet that we organized. But the next week, the white guys still were state champions because the record books didn't give any recognition to the black kids at all. They were just as if they never run.
0: Yeah. Well, what was the mood like? Was it friendly and competitive or was it tense and
1: antagonistic? What was it? If you recall? It was completely friendly, very supportive. We felt happy to be doing it. We enjoyed it. Of course, the guys like it is today, anyway, the guys that get beat don't like it, but uh, they didn't like it because they got beat. They weren't upset about the racial aspect of it at all. That was the only time, though, that that happened. And of course, it didn't change anything in Memphis except the kids. You know, it's like that today. My kids I see now wouldn't have any problem with it. It's older people that have most of the
0: problems. I want to linger on the running for a while because I'm fascinated by some of the information I see here. Either someone has misprinted or I'm reading that you've actually run a 423 mile. Is that right? 424.
1: 424.
0: That's fast.
1: (laughs) Well, it was just 24 uh, seconds over Roger Bannister in the same year, but on a mile run, 24 seconds are you way back?
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, i tell you what. I don't know what got into me, Mike, but I was once in a gym, and I decided to try to run a five-minute mile on a treadmill, and I liked to die. I did it, (laughs) but it was probably one of the closest experiences to death that I had. (laughs) I've never tried it again, and I just can't imagine – so you were running in fifties gear a four sub four thirty mile. Is that right? Yeah. I uh,
1: of course we had heavy senders. We didn't have all weather tracks. We didn't have two a day workouts. We didn't do any weight training. Nobody knew what to eat. It was completely different, but we just did multiple intervals, uh, 440s and 880s. And
0: were you running on flat soles? I mean, were you running on Chuck Taylor?
1: Well, it was funny. The spikes in those days were about an inch long because they had to go through the cinders to give you traction. And they were only on the balls of your feet. You didn't have any cleats on the back of the shoe at all. So you basically had to run a mile on your forefoot. (laughs) Wow.
0: So when you were practicing law, When you were an active trial lawyer, how, if at all, did the running impact your trial work?
1: Well, you know, it's not limited to trial work. I've always felt like exercise, whether it was running or rowing a boat or more of the solitary sports, I guess I'd say, is a great relaxer. And the tension that you create in practicing law will eat you up unless you relieve that tension. I always felt like running long distances for me allowed me to relax, and I guess it's a positive addiction. I didn't drink or smoke, so I just got my relaxation by running. I ran until three years ago when I got Parkinson's disease. So when you
0: ran, would you intentionally not think about your cases, or did you use the running as an opportunity to focus on arguments and theories? Well,
1: each day was different. Some days I would just completely disassociate and I didn't think about anything except what I was seeing in the trail or wherever I was running. Other days I had something on my mind that I couldn't get off of it. And then I'd sort of worry that I'd try to remember what thought I had till I got through running so I could write it down. It wasn't anything consistent, but I feel like, you know, the Blake poets of Wordsworth and Longfellow and those guys, they were big walkers, and they felt like they had their best thoughts when they were out solitary walking, and I felt that same way about running. Of course, I've run 88,000 miles in my life, so.
0: So you mentioned the walkers. As much as running was a part of your life, it sounds like it's in your DNA, frankly, were you able to have a relaxing walk or were you compelled
1: to run? Well, that's always, anytime I was walking somewhere, I would like to be running. And uh, right now, I can't run with this Parkinson's, but I go to the swimming pool and I put an aqua vest on and I run for an hour in the water so that I'm running every three or four days a week, even though I can't get on the ground. So it's something about the running that's better for me than walking.
0: So when you were trying cases, Mike, at least for me, it's always been important to pace myself. The adrenaline of trials would sometimes just get the better of me. And, you know, by the end of the day or midway into the trial, I'd feel wrung out until I learned how to pace myself. Did the running help you pace yourself
1: as a trial lawyer?
0: I think it definitely did.
1: Uh, as a matter of fact, when I was United States attorney, I ran to work and back every day, and I had a shower and a closet, and I just took clean shirts and underwear down there every week. And rest of the time, I just uh, ran. If I had files, I put them on my back. So you're talking to an addicted uh, guy here. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking,
0: what do you miss most about the trial
1: I guess it's uh, excitement and the exhilaration and the intellectual challenge that you can sort of see things unfolding right in front of you. I remember one of my running friends, Dave Waddle, who won the gold medal in the 72 Olympics in Munich. I asked, I said, Dave, do you love running? He said, I hate running, but I love competing. <laughs> I think, you know, I didn't like all the slogging, preparing for trial, but I sure like being in the courtroom and doing what I could. Lucius Birch, my mentor, said that kind of thing is the difference between being a racehorse and a cow. But I don't know whether it is or not. Did you ever have occasion to try a case with Lucius? Lots of cases, lots of cases, 50 at least, I'd say. Of course, in those days, we would have a jury out in circuit court in a personal injury case, whatever we're trying. And we'd start another case in another circuit division while we're still waiting for a jury to come in in another case in that same courthouse. And you didn't spend a lot of time in discovery. It was kind of uh, you just tried by the seat of your pants and your investigation yourself. And so it was a different kind of lawsuit. And a big lawsuit lasted four days that long.
0: Yeah, as opposed to four months today. That's right.
1: That's right. No depositions, no
0: interrogatories. nothing. Yeah, but I mean, I've got to imagine that at some point, some of your other interests caught up with you. So when you're picking jurors... Did folks recognize you and Lucius and some of the work you all did in the civil rights? And did that impact your trial work, if at all?
1: Well, after this period of time, I remember one of the things that Lucius told me when I asked him if he'd represent Dr. King after ACLU called me, he said, well, I want to get us invited and I want to be sure we're not volunteering and I want to meet with Dr. King and let him tell me how this is important because I think he knew just what you were saying that in the memphis community some people might hold the representation of dr king against you and that might be a juror it might be a businessman it could be anyone how about
0: reactions from the bench mike did you ever sense any resentment from the bench
1: i never did and i think it's a funny thing i've thought about that question a lot i didn't have any because uh, dr king was killed i think if dr king had not been killed We would have had more reaction to us as lawyers. You know, when Memphis found out Dr. King was shot and killed, it was sort of like people in Dallas felt about John Kennedy. They hated that John Kennedy was killed, but they hated more that he was killed in Dallas. A lot of Memphis people hated that Dr. King was killed, but they felt worse that he was killed in Memphis because they felt it put a blight on the city, which it should and did. But I never felt any uh, pressure all my life. I've had pressure in this community because I was more liberal than most of them, but nothing that I was ever aware of making any difference the way I felt about things. Yeah. If you don't mind
0: me asking, and if this is you know a question too far, I'm happy to move on. But did it become an issue at home and among your family members? Not at all.
1: Not at all. You see, the representation of Dr. King was just two days. The whole universe of my life is just two days. And then with him killed, it sort of stopped the movie, you know, like it just the scene was sort of stopped. Then we started shifting over to doing things like working on legal services programs and starting things that we felt like Dr. King would have wanted us to do to carry on the mission that he was working on. And so it became a constructive outlet rather than one that you felt like you were under the gun about.
0: Yeah, I understand that. Did you spend enough time with Dr. King to form a sense of his demeanor and gauge his presence? And if the answer is yes, I've got a follow-up question. If the answer is no, I'm going to figure out a way to ask my question anyway.
1: The answer is yes, but you wouldn't believe it because we only spent an hour and a half or two hours together. But he was so impressive and so charismatic. And it wasn't just Dr. King. My mentor and my senior partner, Lucius Birch, was known as the best trial lawyer in the South, and he was good, and he was a Renaissance kind of a man, well-read and just admired for a lot of things other than just being a lawyer. And his conversation with Dr. King was like going to a tutorial on charisma and greatness to watch these two guys talk to each other as equals. Birch didn't think anybody was any better than he did, and certainly Dr. King didn't either. And they had an amazing conversation. And I think just the strength of the communication from Dr. King as he responded to Birch's questions about what civil disobedience was all about was incredible for a young lawyer
0: to observe. And would this have been in Dr. King's cell? No, no.
1: Dr. King came to Memphis, and he had a march in the end of the month of March, and it got broken up. I was in that march as a part of the American Civil Liberties Union staff as an observer, and it got a lot of violence. People got killed, and King announced that he was going to come back to Memphis and lead another march that was going to be peaceful. And when he did that, the city went to federal court and got an injunction to keep him from marching. So when the ACLU called me to represent Dr. King, I went immediately across the hall to my mentor, Lucius Birch, who incidentally was a member of the college, and told him that we need to represent Dr. King. And he said those two things he wanted, one of them was meet with Dr. King. So I called Mel Wolf in New York and Chuck Morgan, who the ACLU people in charge of this, and said, we got to meet with Dr. King, and we got to have a telegram asking us to do it. So they sent the telegram, and then they arranged for us to meet with Dr. King on the afternoon of April the 3rd at the Lorraine Motel. To put it in perspective, that's April 3, 1968. April 4 was the day that he was shot on the balcony right outside that room. So we met with him hour and a half, two hours, in the afternoon of April the 3rd in his room. And then it was the night of the 4th at 6 o'clock when he walked out of that room on the balcony, and James Earl Ray shot him.
0: Yeah. So in all likelihood, you and your team may have been the last lawyers to spend time with Dr. King. I'm sure we were the last lawyers. I have two questions. The first is, what do you think Dr. King would have been like in a
1: courtroom? Well, he'd probably been frustrated because we figured that what the city would do is they would turn cross-examination of Dr. King sort of into a way to sort of put him on trial and the whole civil rights movement and violence in different places And that we made the decision, or Lucius and Dr. King made the decision in that room on the day before the trial, that we'd have Andy Young, who later became mayor of Atlanta and was a UN ambassador, we were going to have him be Dr. King's spokesman in the trial or the hearing. We didn't want Dr. King there because of that very reason that we couldn't put our case on and the city would direct the way the proceeding went. And so we had Andy do it.
0: It almost sounds like you all calculated that Dr. King would have been too much of
1: a distraction. What exactly. And we knew that we only had half a day to get our case on after the city and the police department put their case on in the morning. Do you, by chance,
0: remember what it was about your argument before the court to lift the injunction for the march? Do you remember the gist of the argument?
1: Yeah, the gist of the argument is what Lucius wanted it to be because he's the only one in the courtroom on our side of the table that had anything to say. But the gist of the argument was that it would be more likely a peaceful march if Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference professionals were leading the march under restrictions that we copied from Judge Frank Johnson down in Alabama. Federal court judge, where you didn't have sticks with placards on them, you had communication with the police, only so many marches abreast, radio contact— We set that all up and convinced the court that it was more likely that the march would be peaceful and would accomplish the result if Dr. King was leading it with professional people who were trained in civil disobedience than if he was locked up in the marshal's office and his folks were mad and somebody was just down out walking on the street mad.
0: Man, talk about front line. What kind of trial lawyer do you think Dr. King would have been?
1: I think he would have been good at anything he wanted to do, but I don't think he ever would have wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. His whole basis, you know, was nonviolent, peaceful existence, and he would not have been comfortable with the rigors of cross-examination and making the other side look bad or whatever it was. He'd have been a wonderful closing argument guy, but he wouldn't have handled the rest of it. So well.
0: Right. All of the fun stuff, Right. So I've heard you say a number of times that Lucius Birch was phenomenal. What was it that made
1: him so good? He's fearless. He wasn't afraid of anybody. As a matter of fact, Memphis had a boss when he came here in 1936, practiced law, a guy named E.H. Crump. He was like Pentegrast in Kansas or Machines in New York. He controlled Memphis and Lucius opposed him. And in the 1948 election, beat Crump's candidates, such as Estes Kefalver and the guy named Gordon Browning, who was like the governor. First time the crop machine had gotten beat. Birch was just a fearless guy and smart as he could be. Matter of fact, all the big companies would hire some of the firm maybe to handle their routine work. But anytime time the president of the company got in a big mess somehow, they'd come hire Lucius. <laughs> and did he talk to you about the college? Oh yeah, he and Cody Fowler both.
0: So one more question about those guys and your sense of lawyers. Some lawyers seem to define themselves by the clients
1: they represent.
0: What's your take on that?
1: I don't think we did that. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. Birch was a big believer that you represented anybody that needed a lawyer, whether you agreed with them or didn't agree with them. Fortunately, when ACLU asked us to represent Dr. King, we happened to agree with it, but he represented a lot of people that he didn't agree with, and I had to, too. As a matter of fact, the first trial I had after Dr. King was killed, we represented Hartford Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. I can't forget which one. And there was a store down in South Memphis, a black neighborhood, where somebody broke through the window during the riots, was going to go in there at the guy that was operating the store. And the guy in the store shot him, killed him as he came through the window. I was assigned to represent the store owner that shot him. And I had to take that case because the insurance companies were our client. And I make the point that we completely agree with Dr. King, and I didn't agree with the other side. As a matter of fact, I argued in the United States Supreme Court the case that stopped allowing police to use deadly force to shoot a fleeing felon the Garner case. I lost that case in the United States Supreme Court. Of course, I didn't agree with the police policy and practice. But as attorney general of the state of Tennessee, I had to defend the law that was in Tennessee and 34 other states. So you argued Tennessee versus Garner? I did. I sure did. I lost it. I want to say I lost it six to three or five to four. I think it's six to
0: three. Oh, man. I mean, so the last two years must have been fascinating to you with all the discourse to protest to, some would say, unrest occasioned by the killing of George Floyd, right? Well, I was just
1: glad that I had a part in making the law that police had to have a threat to their life or a threat to someone else before they could use deadly force. You know, I've always felt like as an ACLU lawyer or attorney general, U.S. attorney, you could shape the law a lot more than you could if you were just a private lawyer. And that's what attracted me to those positions, because in this case, it was a very close case in the sense that more states had that law than didn't have. Tennessee wasn't by itself. But it was clear that the Supreme Court knew it was time to make a change, and even the police were glad they did make that change, and we were too, really. The Garner case is the only case I lost in the Supreme Court. I argued three others in one of those cases, but I had better cases than I had in Garner.
0: (laughs) Okay, on to the round robin. You ready for me? Oh, yeah. All right. What's your favorite running
1: shoe of all time? Depending on what the age of the runner was, When I started out, I ran in New Balance and Adidas and Nikes for the most part. But now that I got older, I wear a shoe called a Hoka, H-O-K-A, because it puts your forefoot on the ground first and not your heel. Yeah. I had three running stores in addition to being a runner, so I know a little bit about shoes.
0: Yep. Yep, someone was telling me a couple of days ago that one of the brands, Nike, apparently came out with some shoe that they market as
1: shaving four seconds off your time. Or- It'll do it. It'll do it. And no question about it, it's a carbon plated shoe. In the old days, we called them kangaroo shoes. You couldn't wear them in a race because so you jumped too high. But now they've got them where your foot strike, the carbon plate actually pushes you ahead. They cost about $160 a piece, if not more. But everybody that ran in the World Championships and the Olympics had that shoe on or variation of it. Yeah, I just thought it was nonsense. But no, it works. Fascinating.
0: All right, next one. I'm told you had a late age adoption. You adopted a child at the age of 60. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's 60 being old now that I'm 87. But I 60. <laughs> I did We'd go to Russia and got a little two-year-old when I was 60. My wife is a little younger. She helped with age. But yeah, that little two-year-old that we got in Russia is now 29 and teaching school. And she's got another sister that's 58, a brother that's 57. So a little distance between the two of them, but she's a sweetheart. Last one, Mike.
0: Do you think there's a role for your colleagues in the college and the firms that your colleagues belong to in civil causes? right? And the civil rights movement is different today. It's more of a movement of social equity and justice, I think. Do
1: you think there's a role for the college in that? I think there certainly is. And lawyers are uniquely equipped to solve the problems and help be the leaders in these areas. As I have watched the civil rights movement, it's just as alive now as it was in 1960. It's just different. And as Dr. King said, right before he died, We're moving from civil rights to general rights, economic rights, gender rights, all kinds of things. That still, it's a basis of discrimination against those with power. And I think there's a great need for lawyers as much as there ever was. Are you still hopeful? Very hopeful. Very hopeful. I'm really hopeful because my little girl (laughs) doesn't have near the prejudices that my family had. Kids are getting it. They're going to help us make this a better country.
0: Yeah. What a good note to end on. Well, Mike, unless there's something else you're dying to tell our friends in the college, I'm going to let you go.
1: Thank you, Michael. I won't say anything except to repeat what my uncle Cody Fowler said when he was the second president of the college. He said, you're not really a lawyer unless you can be a trial lawyer.
0: I love it. Thanks, Mike. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.